All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. Title to our message this morning is The Tenth Plague, Death of the Firstborn. This might sound familiar to some of you because in chapter 11, God threatened the death of the firstborn, and then all of our time in chapter 12 so far has been dealing with the Passover, and now God is actually going to execute that uh, threat that he made. So this is new material that may sound familiar. So let's begin Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, your word says that the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. God, give us eyes to see those eternal truths this morning, that all the perishing things, all the things that are temporal would fade away, and you, Lord, would come into view. Cause our hearts to taste and see that you are good. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. So if you've been with us, you know that the book of Exodus is ultimately a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5, 46, that if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses, who wrote Exodus, wrote of me. So where can we see Jesus here in Exodus? Well, he's particularly seen in his works of prophet and priest and king. Prophets reveal God's will to God's people. So we saw the pre-incarnate Christ appear as the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, and he revealed to Moses everything that was about to take place and everything that was required of Moses and Israel. Priests offer sacrifices to reconcile us to God. The Passover the lamb is what we've been seeing is clearly a type of Jesus who was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that blood of the lamb is what reconciled Israel to God and rescued them from the hand of the destroyer. Kings rule and defend their people from all of their enemies. And in this final plague, we see the destroyer went out, he kills all of the firstborn of Egypt, those were the enemies of Israel. So the question is, is who is this destroyer? Well, elsewhere, he's called the angel of the Lord. 
2 Kings 19.35, it says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. This angel of the Lord is the same one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king. God has put all judgment into his hand. We read in the New Testament, John 5, for the father judges no one, but he has placed all judgment over to the son. So this is what's happening in this, this last plague, this 10th plague, this most dreadful plague is judgment, is Jesus Christ is rising up and conquering his enemies, the same enemies who enslaved and tortured and murdered his people. And this points forward to the final judgment when all of God's enemies, all of our enemies, loved ones, uh, will be brought to the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne, and they will be finally and irrevocably dealt with. Jesus Christ truly is our prophet. He reveals everything that we need for salvation. He truly is our priest. He reconciled us to God through the blood of his own body, but he is also our king and he will not stay his sword forever. He is faithful, and he has promised to conquer all his and our enemies. And that's our big idea, that salvation for God's people means the conquering of all his and our enemies. So let's look first of all at our doctrine this morning. Look with me at verse 29. The first thing that we read here is that this happened at Midnight. Uh, the night or darkness is synonymous with judgment in the scripture. 1 Samuel 2.9 says that God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. So even this little detail here is not insignificant. The second thing we read is that it is the Lord who did this. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. As liberal commentators and skeptics try to explain this passage, they'll say things like, um, well, this was just a sudden visitation of an epidemic disease. They explain it in naturalistic terms. Um, But that is not at all what the scripture says. Straightforwardly, the text tells us that it was the Lord who did this. He prophesied that he would do this back in chapter 11, verse 4, and he brought it to pass by his own hand. This is a divine judgment. And the third thing we need to see here is the scope of the judgment. Halfway through verse 29, we read, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who sat in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, remember, in an earlier message, we learned that the firstborn here doesn't refer to uh, chronology. It's not necessarily the first in birth order. It means the firstborn son, the heir, the patriarch. So as one author says here, the death of the firstborn meant the firstborn of any age, whether they be grandfathers, fathers, or sons. The firstborn in much of history has had governmental responsibilities in the family and represented the family's future. So Pharaoh's heir to the throne, and it says it in the text, perished. 
And that's exactly what God promised back in chapter 4, verse 23. He said that Israel is my firstborn son. If you refuse to let him go, then I will kill your firstborn son. But also we see the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. He also perished. What do we learn from this? Well, we learned that the highest of society all the way to the lowest in society were judged. Judgment comes to all because all have sinned. The rich do not escape this judgment because uh, they are well off and neither do the poor escape because they are worse off. But we also see that the firstborn of the livestock perished. Why the livestock? Well, remember that the livestock were revered in Egypt as gods. And so this plague upon the beasts once again demonstrated that Egypt's gods were impotent against Yahweh. Which brings us to this question. What Egyptian god was this plague directed against? Recall that God was not just judging the nation of Egypt. Numbers 33.4 says that he was executing judgment against their gods. And this is such an important principle. Whenever God judges a nation, he also judges their gods. So which god was it? Well, we actually have a clue. Uh, Look back with me at chapter 11, verse 7. This is when God threatened the plague. And he said... But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Not a dog shall growl. Um, There was an Egyptian god that had a dog's head, uh, specifically a jackal's head. It was Anubis, the Egyptian god of death. Egyptian Museum Online records this. Jackals were associated with death because they lurked around cemeteries and would eat decomposing flesh. Therefore, by making Anubis the patron of deity of jackals, the Egyptians hoped to protect the bodies from being devoured. As recorded in the Book of Dead, Anubis's other job was to stand in the hall of the two truths and weigh the hearts of people seeking judgment. This is one of those instances where God is using satire to make fun of Egypt's puny God. Not a dog shall growl. He has zero power over life and death. Look with me at verse 30, back in chapter 12. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. All of Egypt was awake in the middle of the night. Why? Because the cry was so loud, it was waking everybody up. Just like a soldier can't sleep on a battlefield because of the sound of guns and bombs that are going off. So no one could sleep in Egypt to the sound of mothers and fathers weeping over their lost children. It permeated every inch of the atmosphere. And brothers and sisters, this is clearly a picture of the last judgment. Matthew 25, 30 says that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this point right here is a place where we see that Egypt was reaping what they had sown. 
They threw the Hebrew baby males into the Nile for the crocodiles to eat. And now God is revenging himself upon them. Earlier in Exodus, God heard the cry of his people. We read, and now the cry of Egypt is heard all over the land. 11, chapter 11, verse 6 says that it was such a great cry as there has never been nor ever will be again. This was Egypt's great tribulation. Please look with me at verses 31 and 32. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by the night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. Now, Pharaoh had to have sent his servants here because back in chapter 10, he said, you'll never see me again. Moses agreed and he said, I will never see your face again. So this is his servants telling him to leave as per Pharaoh's command. And what we see here is that every word of God is coming to pass. Um, back in chapter six, verse one, you don't have to turn there, but what, what God tells Moses is he says, look, you shall see now what I'm going to do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. He had already prophesied that Pharaoh would forcibly compel them out of the land. And here we see Pharaoh doing that very thing. His first command is up. Don't sleep any longer. Don't wait for the morning. This can't wait. You must leave now. And three times he says, go out and go and be gone. He doesn't try to negotiate any longer with, his, with Israel's children or with their herds. He says, take all of them, the old, the young, and all of your flocks. And so every word of God is coming to pass just as God has said. And this is such an important point. Beloved, God's promises never fail and you, you, can, you can sit there and you can nod with your head, but it's this thing, it's this very thing that we struggle with the most. Will God's promises fail for me? Men may forget promises. Men may be unfaithful to promises, but God never forgets. And his faithfulness endures for generations. Finally, we do see, though, Pharaoh making one final request. Look, he says at the end of verse 32, he says, bless me also. And this is one of those requests that I, I think is, is pretty confusing, and so we just have to do a little digging. Was Pharaoh asking for mercy? Is this repentance that he's coming to? Is this humility on Pharaoh's part? Well, no, it's not at all. Romans 9 says that he was a reprobate, that his heart was as hard as a stone. So then why is he asking for a blessing? Well, I actually think this is his last attempt to negotiate. Pharaoh believed, recall, that he was God over Egypt. And now he's letting the God, he's letting Israel uh, who Yahweh is God over, he's letting them go. And he wants a blessing for agreeing to Yahweh's terms. One author puts it like this. 
He was trying to get God to acknowledge publicly that his act of releasing the Hebrews, a tribute payment as it were, entitled him to God's protection. If he could get God's blessing, his payment would wipe the slate clean. God would be testifying to the legitimacy of Pharaoh's rule, end quote. You see, this wasn't at all reverence. This was rebellion. This was his last act of rebellion. He's saying, okay, Yahweh, you are God over Israel, but acknowledge that I'm still God over Egypt. And this is such a picture of the reprobate heart. We, we tend to think, well, if the reprobate, if, if the wicked would just see mighty miracles, if they could just see God act, then they would repent. No, they won't. Um, the wicked never repent, even under the most dire judgment, unless the Spirit of God comes upon them. Revelation 16.9 records of this generation that says, they were scorched by the fierce heat. They were cursed and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. They were, they were burning up. And it says, they did not repent or give him glory. And notice here that Moses gives no blessing. God cannot bless the man who will not repent because he would be endorsing the very sin that affronts his holiness. We do know what happened a few days after this. Pharaoh chases down the Hebrews to the Red Sea and God drowns him and his entire army in an instant. And history records after these events that the Hyksos people, who some identify as the Amalekites, they invaded Egypt and enslaved them for more than 100 years. And so God executed the law of lex talionis. That's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, Egypt enslaved the people of Israel. God hands them over to slavery. Egypt kills the sons of Israel. God kills the sons of Egypt. And so that brings us then to our doctrine this morning. That salvation for God's people means the conquering of all his and our enemies. Children, boys and girls, how does every good story end? How does every good story end? Does the bad guy live? No. The hero rescues the girl, and he kills the dragon in every good story. It's the bad stories that, that lie about the nature of reality. That's the exodus. Christ is rescuing Israel. He's slaying the dragon. And the reason why this part is so vital to see is because I fear that many of us have an underdeveloped theology when it comes to seeing what Jesus accomplishes for us. He doesn't just rescue us from our sins. What kind of a world would that be if we were rescued from our sins and the enemy forever persecutes us? Could you be happy with that world? Whenever Christ saves us, he defeats our enemies. I want to give you three proofs from Scripture. The first proof is the Proto-Evangelium. Please turn with me to Genesis 3.15. First proof is the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15. Proto-Evangelium just means the first gospel. 
Immediately after the fall, God promised that he would send Christ and that he would accomplish two things, save his people and slay her enemies. Halfway through verse 15, this is what God says to the serpent. He, that's Christ, shall bruise your head. So Christ would crush Satan's head on the cross, putting to death our greatest foe. And you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So in that bloody death that Satan provoked, we are saved. So the the cross of Jesus Christ promises not only that we're saved, but that our mortal enemy, the great dragon, would be slain. This is precisely what Hebrews 2.14 says, that Jesus came that he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Proof number two, the flood. Please turn with me to Genesis 7. Proof number two, the flood. Two weeks ago, uh, the RYS youth, we were in Kentucky um, at the Ark Encounter. If you, if you have never been, this would be a great place for a vacation. It is amazing. It is a life-size replica of the, fl- of the Ark. Um, it, was, it was more amazing than, than I ever imagined it to be. Why did God have Noah build that ark? Were they going on a cruise? Genesis 6-5, before the building of the ark, he says, wickedness has filled the earth. And every intention of, of man's heart is only evil continually from his youth. He had him build the ark because his people were in danger of being swallowed up. Now, Look at verses 22 and 23. Look at the end of the matter. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Noah and his family were saved. That's salvation and everyone else perished. Proof number three, the day of judgment. Now turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Now this is the end of all days when the wicked receive their sentence. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you're viewing not your sentence. You're viewing the sentence of the wicked. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire." 
Beloved, that is when our deliverance will be complete. When every last one of Christ's enemies and our enemies will finally be put down. So that's our doctrine, that salvation for God's people means the conquering of all his and our enemies. Let's look then to our duty. And our first is simply to consider what kind of songs God has us sing. What kind of songs does God have us sing? You know that God commands us to sing psalms. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So psalm singing is not one of those things that we can just say, eh, whatever. No, the Bible tells us to sing them. And we need to ask why. Why does the Bible have us sing psalms? Well, one reason, not not every reason, but one reason is that we need to be able to respond to the truly evil things that happen in this world. That's why imprecatory psalms exist. Imprecatory psalms are psalms where we are calling down God's curse on the wicked. This morning, did did you notice that we sang Psalm 3, portions of Psalm 3. In verse 3, we sang this line together. Rise up, O Lord, and fight. Break their jaws. Destroy the wicked. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? We've been trained, haven't we? Poorly. Uh, we, we also sing from Psalm 75, not this morning, but out on other, other mornings. For in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. We, we sing from Psalm 2. Um, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter vessel. A question. How many hymns and contemporary songs can you think of that have words like that? I know I ask a lot of rhetorical questions, but I would assume that there'd be crickets even if you were to speak at this point. Can you think of one? Can you even think of one? Why does God instruct us to sing songs like that? Because in this world, there are Egyptians that throw Christian children to the crocodiles. One author puts it like this. There are men who will grin for the camera over the prospect of beheading Christian children. And our response to them should be to pray the words of God back to him. In the face of the kind of evil that is abroad in the world, evangelical Christians need to stop filling up their worship services with sentimentalist treacle and to start worshiping biblically in a very dark world. We're confronted with a great and growing evil, and we are discovering that we do not have the liturgical vocabulary to respond to it appropriately at all. Certainly, this is not an argument against singing other types of songs. 
um, Scripture tells us to. We must include the Psalms. Why? Number one, because God commands it. Number two, because singing Psalms shapes our souls to deal with the world as it is. Mao Zedong, the dark father of the Republic, People's Republic of China, knew this very well. He knew that the singing of songs would spread communist propaganda. He knew that singing shapes our souls. So, so think hard just for a second. Think hard. If you were the devil, what is one way that you would weaken the church? Have them stop singing psalms. That's the quickest path to worthless pietism is to control the songbook of the church. So that's our first duty is to consider carefully the songs that God has us to sing. Our second duty is to comfort ourselves. We can comfort ourselves with this truth that God always keeps his promises. My son asked me um, on Friday, he said, Dad, um, what are you preaching tomorrow? What are you preaching on Sunday? And I I said, "Um, well, the the death of the firstborn. And he said, didn't you already preach on that? Uh, My wife said the same thing yesterday. What are you preaching on tomorrow? The death of the firstborn. You already preached on that. No, we preached on the threat of the death of the firstborn. This is the actual death. Why does God repeat himself? I'm sure some of you feel the same way. Maybe you're expecting like part 18 of the Passover this morning or something. And I had the temptation to lump all these verses together and just speed right through them. Why, why shouldn't we just pass through this quickly? We've already covered this ground. But that would be such a mistake. It would be such a mistake. Don't you see? Don't you see, loved ones? This is where we find all of our comfort. How many chapters have we seen in Exodus thus far where God makes promises? I promise this, I promise this, I promise this, I promise this. And now we arrive at the very place where he fulfills these promises. Will we rush by it? Listen, he promised in Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand. I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Fulfilled here. Pharaoh let them go, and in fact, he drove them out of the land. He promised in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Fulfilled here. Pharaoh, for the first time, calls Israel, not his slaves, but the people of Israel, God's own people. He promised in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's fulfilled here. Not one Israelite perished because they were all covered by the blood. Not one of God's promises fell to the ground. And this is in spite of all their unbelief, in spite of their sin, in spite of their unfaithfulness. God was faithful still. Dear congregation, God never lies. What has he promised you? What has he promised you? And what has he already fulfilled in your life? Take a look at yourselves. You're free men. You are free women. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. You've been washed. 
You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Christians should be the happiest creatures in the universe. We serve a God who who fulfills every promise that he has made. And and beloved, there are greater promises yet to be fulfilled. There's a greater freedom coming. The world is not what it will be. Christ will have the victory. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Nothing can stop him. See, what we're seeing here is that Pharaoh couldn't stop him. What happens is the the story goes on. The Canaanites couldn't stop him. What happens is the story goes on. The Pharisees couldn't stop him. Satan couldn't stop him. Eventually, all of mankind will surrender to Christ. And what a day that will be. When every knee will bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So, beloved, what are you facing right now? What challenges? What hardships? I'm not belittling any of those. God knows those things. God will bring you comfort. But do not be dismayed. Do not be dismayed at your circumstances. The Lord Almighty cannot be stopped. He never lies. He's not a man. He's not unfaithful. He'll never fail you. He promises that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Every promise that has been made to you has been sealed in the covenant blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in him, all to the glory of God. That's our second duty, that we comfort ourselves with God's promises. If God fulfilled his promises to the covenant people of old, he will certainly fulfill his covenant promises to us. Let's look then at our delight. And our first delight is to be able to answer one of the most difficult questions that this passage raises. Unbelievers have looked at this passage and they say things like this. I can't believe that a good God would kill innocent children. What kind of a God is this? Two answers to this. First, there's no such thing as innocent children. The Egyptian children were not innocent. The Hebrew children were not innocent. And and loved ones, our children are not innocent. When Adam sinned, all sinned in him. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Every soul in Egypt was a sinner. Death was coming to every single one of them. The only question was when. When would God carry out that sentence? And let me tell you that the sovereign king of the universe has the right to determine how long each one of us shall live, whether it be one minute or a hundred years. God was not putting innocent children to death. There's no such thing. Secondly, God has only put one innocent child 
to death. His child, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as our text says that the Lord struck down Nakah, the firstborn of Egypt, so the Lord struck down Nakah, his only son. Isaiah 53, 4, surely he took on our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, struck down, Nakah, and afflicted. Pharaoh's firstborn son, the prince of Egypt, died, but oh, an infinitely greater death occurred for our sake. Christ, the king of heaven, was struck down. He was the only innocent person in the history of the world that was ever struck down by God. I'm not saying that there haven't been victims of horrendous crimes. There obviously have been. Many have wrongly been put to death by wicked men. But every human being that has ever suffered was still a sinner, save one, the Lord Christ. He was holy and he was harmless and he was undefiled. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He loved not only his neighbors himself, but he loved enemies like you and me as his own body, that he, he freely gave his body over to, to death for our sake. Never has the world seen such mercy and pity and love. God struck down this man, this God-man, not because Jesus sinned, but because we have sinned. We have been defiled since birth. We are those who had the death sentence hanging over us. The destroyer's footsteps were at the very door. Surely we were set to perish with the rest of mankind, but God sent forth his son in the fullness of time to redeem us. He became a curse so that the curse would be lifted from us. This story is not about a God who puts innocent children to death. This story has a deeper magic. This story is about a God who is slow to anger. Nine plagues passed before this plague was sent to unleashing this judgment. And so this is a warning for anyone who's not a believer. God's patience will come to an end. Like Pharaoh, every unbeliever who hears my voice has been shown wonder after wonder after wonder of God's mercy and love. Don't perish as Pharaoh did. Turn to God and live. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Our last delight is that we can look at the future with unwavering hope. The church in America today finds itself very much in the same place as Israel did while they were enslaved to Egypt. There's a sense in which there is an American captivity of the church. Our nation has rebelled against the Lord of heaven, and our nation, in fact, just like Egypt, serves multiple gods. You realize that the gods of the ancient world has been resurrected in our time. Our, our nation worships Moloch, abortion. Our nation worships Baal, climate change. Our nation worships Asherah, sex. What will become of us? 
Well, the destruction of the firstborn here gives us an answer. It will not be the church that perishes loved ones. The destroyer will not come near us. The gates of hell shall not prevail. There, there may be hard times ahead. We, have, we might have to wake up in the middle of the night and, and flee, but the angel of death will not come near the door of the redeemed. Christ, our King, will rise up. Christ, our King, will reign until he conquers all his and our enemies. Let's pray. Our Father and our God. God, we thank you that you are faithful to every single promise that you have made. And here as Israel is leaving Egypt, we've already seen a multitude of your promises be fulfilled. And Lord, we know that as Exodus continues to unpass, to un be unpacked, that more and more promises will be seen to be fulfilled. And we Praise you that we have this record. Lord, help us to grab a hold of these truths that we can look and see what kind of a God that we serve. That every single promise that you have made will be fulfilled because every single promise finds its yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for the word today. Help us to sing as though all victory has already been won. In Jesus' name.